I can't believe we have recorded over 90 episodes of Live Well, Be Well, but I'm yet to touch upon one of the main fundamental topics which sits at the root core of living well and being well. To be the most effective version of ourselves, must we be happy? Do we have to work to keep happy? And if so, how do we even do this? One of the most profound effects that we find in happiness data in the life satisfaction question this is, how happy are you with with your life these days or overall, is a U-shaping age. It's a really significant U-shaping age. We find that across any population anywhere in the world. I got trolled when I wrote a piece for The Guardian on what makes me happy. It was partly tongue-in-cheek, but mostly serious. I think I said that I'd rather be in the gym than spend time with my kids. That was absolutely true when they were babies. I think it's a very, very real phenomenon that we experience something as we approach midlife that makes us feel less happy. And since it's so profound and so pervasive and so universal, it's probably likely to be something very basic like existential dread or something. Now, if I asked you honestly, how happy do you believe you are? It's a hard one to answer because I would say I believe I'm genuinely a happy person, but have I believed that from the social narratives I have interpreted on what we're told happiness is? Now, I started off season nine with British legend David Williams, where he believes happiness is a sort of fleeting moment and it's something that you can catch. And we all relate to wanting to feel happy, much happier maybe than we currently are. But data sadly shows that unhappiness is rising at unprecedented rates. And in today's episode, we're going to look at the philosophy and the science into how we could actually design a happier life for ourselves. Paul Dolan is a professor of behavioural science at LSE. His main research interests are human behaviour and happiness, particularly as they apply to policy. He is the author of best-selling books, Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. And he also hosts the Duck Rabbit podcast about the polarisation problem in our society today. Now, this conversation with Paul really did get me thinking. We sadly had to cut quite a bit out of this episode because Paul and I continued to talk for many hours and one that I thought might not be as relatable to our season. So this is an hour's episode, but you will have so many nuggets to take away. Honestly, get ready to understand the truth and the science on how you can design a happier life. Paul, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. So, you are a professor of behavioural sciences at the London School of Economics. Yes. You're also known as the happy professor, I've read. Have you read that? Yeah. Yeah, I have Happiness read that. professor, yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. Are you I'm a happy always, Oh, God, don't start with that. Everyone starts with that question. Uh, well, it's, I, am, I, mean, it's I am until I get asked it. Um, no, I think I am, generally. I think I'm quite lucky to have good genes for happiness which obviously play a big part in a lot of how we are. Yeah, I mean, you'd expect someone who does research into these things to... Mm. Actually, maybe we go into the research because we're not very happy to try and find out what it is that makes <laughs> us happy. But no, the short answer is I think I'm pretty happy. You just said the something time. there that actually I'm really interested in. Genes, they play a part in how happy we, we are or not. Yeah, they play a big part in everything, don't they, right? I mean, they play a big part in what we do, what we think, how we feel not just how tall we are, you know, right? Mm. So in a more complex way, of course, they interact with our environment. 
so it's epigenetics that's the key you know that's the key thing it's how the genes interact with the environment to produce particular outcomes mm. um but that's genes, the genes in them that can switch on and off correct it's activated by an environmental trigger yeah some people have used the nice analogy of the genes being the piano keys and the environment being the pianist mm -hmm. so certain keys are activated at certain times to produce particular outcomes but genes in themselves, insofar as we can isolate the independent and separate effects of genes, play a significant part in most things, mm. everything almost that we that we do. Even our, you know, views of the world, right? You know, our views of social justice even can be shaped by genes. So it'd be unsurprising that our happiness would also be shaped by genetic factors too. I love that. So you maybe you've just got a lot of happy genes. Uh, yeah, maybe, um, <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, I've never thought uh, about it in that way. I've always thought about it in saying that it's how we look at happiness and how we try to create our own happiness. And it's a lot about the mindset, but I'd never thought about it from a genetic point of view. Before. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't want to overstate it. The point being that whatever your genetic predisposition to be a particular way, to feel a particular way, there are, of course, lots of things that you can do or that can be done to you that will change the way that you feel, often temporarily and sometimes permanently. So Paul, I always open this podcast with a question, which is, what have you changed your mind about in the last 10 years? Yeah, so maybe a couple of things come to mind. Um, one of the basis of the evidence around income and happiness, I, th I think I would have surely thought before that getting ever richer would make you ever happier. Uh, I'm not sure that is true. And I think that being super rich might not be good for us. So we're going to go into the environmental impact and how we kind of reshape our mindset. But before we even go into that yes. and dissect it, what is happiness? How would you describe it? Yeah, now that is a good question. I mean, so look, I mean, two and a half thousand years of ethical discourse haven't got us an answer, right? We're probably not going to get it in the next couple of minutes. I would first of all say it's very simply about how we feel. When we feel better, when we feel good, then we're happier. So that for me then means it's located in our experiences. It's in what we pay attention to day to day, moment to moment. Right? It's how I'm feeling now talking to you. There's a whole range of emotions that I'm experiencing simultaneously when we speak. And all the other things that I go, you know, that I do when I go about my life. And what I do in Happiness by Design, my first, my first book, uh, I didn't intentionally get a plug in for that so quickly. But so first of all, I talk about pleasure, which is essentially emotions that people would typically be used to describing joy contentment as positive ones you know anger worry stress as negative ones interesting that we have many more negative words than we do have positive mm -hmm. ones sitting alongside those feelings are another set of feelings sentiments we might call them that relate to purpose to whether things feel as if they're worthwhile meaningful fulfilling mm -hmm. and in contrast a waste of time or pointless and the reason i pay attention to happiness defined in this way in an experiential way moment to moment day to day is because that sits in quite sharp contrast to the ways in which we often measure happiness for the big surveys which is to ask people very global questions of how satisfied they are with their lives overall or these days which are important questions mm -hmm. but they don't directly get at how people feel that comes into my next question which is how do we measure happiness and that's ask what people. Yeah. I mean, ask people. That, do you think people really resonate? Do you think people really actually can dissect if they're happy or not? Or do they just think that actually, well, I guess I am a happy person, rather than actually understanding if they are experiencing happiness? Yeah, I mean, it'd be super cool if we could just find out how happy people were without asking them, if we could mm -hmm. observe it. 
And there are things that we can do. There's science advances, physiological measures, you know, um, that we might use or psychological measures that might observe people. But look, I mean, if you go to your doctor and say you're in pain, he or she will ask you how much it hurts, right? I mean, it is a subjective experience. Yeah. It is how you feel. And there's all sorts of challenges and questions and issues around how we tap into that and the answers people give. But fundamentally, it is a subjective experience. So still the best way to find out about it is to ask people. And it's interesting that you, you speak about happiness being subjective because we had David Walliams on a couple right. of weeks ago and it was the opening episode of our season nine. We spoke about happiness. Right. So obviously, you know, he's known as very famous British comedian. And we spoke a lot about happiness with him and he mentioned two things. He Mm. said, one big thing was comedy. Mm. He said, that's a great way to challenge adversity. And that's how I try to keep my happiness levels up. Secondly, he said, was doing good and giving back. Right. And they're the two things on how he would describe he creates his own happiness within himself. Do you agree with, with what he says? Well, I mean, yes. In short, I guess. I mean, there's two, they're... They're two fundamental determinants of how we feel. I mean, laughter clearly, you know, if you if, laughing, if we smile now, we're going yeah. to feel happier. Yeah. And maybe it's a, it's a good thing in one sense that you can get social prescriptions now for laughter therapy. Can you? You can, because it's an evidence-based intervention. On the other hand, it's quite a sad indictment of modern world that mm. we have to be prescribed laughter, right? <laughs> how I mean, do you it's like laughter? it's like well, you get sent to do laughter therapy, but. You know, shouldn't we just be finding ways to laugh more anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, comedy is a really important outlet for that. Humour is a really important part of life. It's not an important part of academic research, though. I mean, I think, obviously, because most academics aren't very funny, but it's almost, I don't know, looked on as, a, as not a serious pursuit. You know, the idea of laughter and joy and humour is kind of, you know, maybe what lower-order beings do or something, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're more cerebral and more kind of advanced than that. You know, which is clearly <laughs> wrong <laughs> because we can all be happier from laughing more. The helping other people point is super interesting because I've spoken about that a lot in various places about how it's actually one of the most selfish things you can do to be selfless, mm-hmm. right? Because not only does the other person benefit, but you feel good about yourself. And I think one of the reasons that we don't get as much pro-sociality as we might otherwise get is we don't tap into that selfishness quite as much as we should. We have a hierarchy of charity, this idea that you know, it needs to be self-flagellating. You know, unless I'm actively harming myself, it's not helping other people. Well, that's complete nonsense because we've got good evidence to show from really good experiments to show that when you tap into the selfishness... So, for example, if, you're, if you've got a volunteer programme, I talk about the personal benefits that people that volunteer get. You get more volunteering for longer. So I think celebrating the happiness hit that you personally get from helping other people will be a super way to increase pro-sociality. Because I read, because I'm actually writing a talk at the moment, and um, I think a big part of my own journey was was finding the BY Collective, which is my not-for-profit organisation. It's only through writing my personal talk that I've actually realised the effects of giving back and actually what that's had on the effect on my mental health. And apparently, you can quote me if this is incorrect, but giving back activates the me part of the brain, they call it, which is the same way that it's activated in meditation, that it actually brings a huge sense of calmness to oneself. And that actually blew my mind. It's something that I was obviously doing, but totally unaware of. Yeah, there is, I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, so you need to get a neuroscientist <laughs> on to talk about the neuroscience. But there's certainly activation in the pleasure 
you know, parts of the brain as well when mm. people are helping other people. I think, although as I say, you should get a neuroscientist on to talk about that. But we create these narratives around our behaviours and around pro-sociality, don't we, that kind of almost cleanse it of the idea that it should be personally beneficial. And as I say, I think that's, that's not good for encouraging more pro-sociality. Because a lot of behavioural science teaches us that we make mistakes and we get lots of things wrong and we can laugh at ourselves and stuff and laugh at other people mostly. But fundamentally, we're, we're not that stupid, right? We don't, when we pursue something and continue to pursue it, it's typically because the feedback is that it feels good, right? So if you're getting that feedback that something like helping other people feels good, then you're going to be more likely to do more of it. And you mentioned something there, actually, which really ties into something you talk about heavily, which is social narratives. Yes. Where I think we can all be drawn into this vision of what we should do, yes. as opposed to what we actually want to do. Can you explain a bit more about how this can affect our actual happiness? Yeah, so look, I mean, life is pretty chaotic and very complex, and it's unsurprising that we look for rules to help govern our behaviour. And those rules will typically come from social narratives, from norms about what's expected of us, the kind of person that we ought to be as we define ourselves, as other people define us, as family expect of us, as wider society might expect, as evolutionary advantage might want for, for us or from us. And much of the time, those narratives and stories will cohere with making us happy, but not for all of us all of the time. And so narratives around, you know, success and status serve us well to a point. Again, I mean, the evidence, we haven't got very many randomised controlled trials that we could say, you know, causally this is the case. But some strong suggestion that you can kind of pursue these things a bit too much. They could become quite addictive. Mm. You know, you can never have enough money. You can never have enough status. When actually saying just enough at some point would probably be good for us and maybe for wider society too or expectations placed upon us to get married and have children you know that's a very powerful narrative mm -hmm. i can see you i can see you nodding i know so. i've got about seven questions in my head and i'm just not sure <laughs> which just one i need to fire at you first because there's so many things in there the point being the simple to. point being is i don't want to be i don't want to be to make the claim that we should just be counter narrative because that would be its own story it's for us to recognize and accept that these stories are there that they're powerful and that they can shape a lot of what we do and feel, and for us to work out for ourselves whether they're stories that we want to pursue or ones that we might want to do something different about. There's a couple of things in there that I really want to bring up. I think one, definitely around the social narratives, you spoke about success there. and mm. So success in the English Oxford Dictionary is known as wealth, fame, and social status. Mm. So that's how we define success today in society. So we're already, from a very young age, being taught that this is success. And if you don't fit into these three categories, then you're not successful. But success for me relates to happiness. So again, then are we skewing that social narrative of if we don't fit these three demographics, or we hit these three areas, are we not successful? And then are we just not happy? It's pathological, isn't it, mm. to think that people should be pursuing things in the name of those outcomes when sometimes... This, this would be the pathology, they make you miserable. Mm. I mean, actively seeking something that makes you miserable is a pathology. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of people stay in jobs a lot longer than they should from a happiness perspective because they think they should for some other argument or some other reason. And they would see themselves as a failure if they quit something that's making them miserable. Mm -hmm. How perverse is that? But why do you think we 
do that? Why do you think that we're quite susceptible to that? I think because these stories have some resonance for them at some point for many people. And it is true that poverty makes people miserable. Mm. It is true that having no social status and no standing mm. will make people miserable. Mm. And the problem is that we become addicted. You, you, you can never have too much mm. when actually you can have too much. Most things in life are on a U shape or an inverted U. I mean, they either, you know, they start off badly, they get better, and then they go bad again. Or they start off well and they get bad and then they go up again. Like, nothing's linear. Well, mm. nothing's linear is a bit of a strong claim, but you know, most things are not linear. It's not yeah. simple. And so I think what we do is we get sucked into these narratives of being good for us, mm. irrespective of how much we have. Our next partner is a trusted and highly concentrated Omega-3 brand, Minami. Did you know that it's important to consider an omega-3 supplement if you do not consume one to two portions of oily fish a week? Because omega-3s contribute to a normal brain function, a healthy heart and vision. So lucky for you guys, Minami is a brand I wholeheartedly recommend for the whole family as they stand out from the rest. They are the omega-3 experts. Minami is one of the highest concentrated and a pure omega-3 brands available in the market. So you get more omega-3 nutrition per soft gel, which means fewer capsules to swallow. They have a high concentration of 90 to 95% of omega-3 per capsule. They are free from solvents and fillers, and they have a low environmental impact, sourcing sustainable fish from unpopulated water of the South Pacific. I'm a huge believer in the importance of omega-3 for our health. So you can find Minami products online at www.revital.co.uk. Thank you very much, Minami. You've said that there's four common myths that dispel a happier life. And I think people would love to hear this. And it, it relates to this social narratives. Finding the one, more money, focusing on education and career success talk me through them because I think these are the four points that people always try to hit within their life to okay, find do that happiness. Okay, do you take one each, each in turn? Yes. So start with... Finding the one. Finding the one. What fucking nonsense is that anyway? <laughs> I mean, I mean, like seriously, the idea that there's one person sets up this expectation that's complete nonsense. I mean, one person is never going to provide you with, with everything that you need throughout your life, mm. right? So we're all of us managing in different ways that fact against the backdrop of a story that says... Once you meet the perfect person, you know, your life is going to be living happily ever after. And, and no wonder that doesn't happen. Well, that's um, what I grew up watching on TV. You do get that narrative fed to you a lot, don't a lot. you? A lot. You get the body image perception of how you should look. You get who you should marry. You get your Prince Charming. You get the happily ever after. And I think that is not meant to be toxic but actually growing up in that environment thinking that's how you lead your life maybe if that isn't the path that you take you start questioning if there's something wrong with you but again what's important is to be clear like what is it that is true in that story in the sense that having someone you can talk to about stuff is fundamentally important mm -hmm. to how we feel if, 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 if actually I was going to ask a question there was a happiness question that wasn't happiness I think it, it would not be far off that kind of question you know do you have someone you can talk to about stuff because if the answer to that question is no then you're probably not doing very well. And often that will come from an intimate partner. So we know that being in a relationship or relationships that are good for you are good for happiness. Mm. Relationships are fundamental to our happiness. They're just not always located in being married or to, with the same person forever. Mm -hmm. But it's really important that we're clear that 
relationships are fundamentally important to us and having good healthy ones that's what really matters whether it's defined as marriage or not is really not important i think healthy relationships are at the core to your overall well-being yeah. actually yeah but actually how healthy are they is, is the and i think question. you know again you know marriage again it's not a controversial thing to say that there's no one size fits all approach mm. to this you know a lot of people m- marriage if, if that's finding the one if you mean that you know by that then marrying them and spending the rest of your life with them works very well for many people mm. just doesn't work for everybody and the mm. idea that we that we impose that on everybody i think is harmful yeah not not the idea that it might exist and it might work for many people and so what about more money well i like to use a football analogy here and or, or any sport where there's referees in the mm. game Commentators will often say after a football match if the ref has had a good game based upon whether they've gone unnoticed, right? You don't want to notice because they've you know, let the game flow. They haven't made any controversial decisions. They've been a good ref mm-hmm. by their absence rather than by their presence. And, and money is like that. You want to try and find a point at which you're not paying attention to it, right? You pay attention to it a lot when you're poor. Poverty is very attention-seeking. Mm-hmm. How am I going to pay the bills? How will I feed the kids? It's not good for you. No. Um, and, and so this kind of money of doesn't make people happy. I don't like that glib statement that often quite wealthy academics make. You know, money doesn't make people happy. Well, if you haven't got any, you're it not going to be very happy. Yeah. It takes a lot of pressure off. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. But then quite quickly, you don't need very much money to then start not paying so much attention to it. I mean, mm. one of the reasons the cost of living crisis will be a challenge for people is because the people that previously didn't have to pay attention to money will alongside those that are already having to pay more attention to it because they really are struggling to pay the bills. But sometimes then maybe when you get richer still, you then start paying attention to money again. Have I got the right portfolio, the right assets, have we bought the right second home? You know, all those things that then start drawing attention to it. So from an attentional phenomenon, it wouldn't be unsurprising maybe that being you can be too rich, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So again, it's finding the sweet spot. Mm. And what would you say that is? Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer in terms of what level of income people would need. I mean, we've only got correlations mostly Mm. from income to happiness, so it's hard to make causal claims. It's not in the hundreds of thousands. It's in the tens of thousands. And I guess it's so in relation to where you live, because London is so much more grossly expensive than living somewhere where I grew up, which was Portsmouth. The difference in the living costs is exponential. It's huge. So I think also there's a huge relation to how much you're earning to where you're living, which is your environmental impact, I guess you'll find. is, is Yeah, it's one. interesting, again, that the evidence is suggestive of living in bigger cities, capital cities around the world being the least happy places to live. And I think there's a number of reasons for that, one of which you just drew attention to, they're more expensive to live in. But of course, salaries are higher. But I think there's also, you notice inequalities more. I don't know what you think about that, but... In Portsmouth, yeah, of course you had rich and poor areas, Mm. but you probably notice them less than you do when you walk around London, where you see those extremes of wealth much more obviously. And they're they're just kind of latent almost, even if you're not paying attention to them, they're there. Mm. And I think that also plays into how people feel too. Oh, absolutely. I think you're always surrounded by it, aren't you? You're always surrounded by, well, I could do better because I could be achieving this. Or... I could be achieving more because, and you also have, I think, well, definitely for me, a more diverse range of social groups than when I actually was in Portsmouth and I grew up, actually, it was a very small set of social people that I hang around with. Yeah, and one of the things, you know, we would naturally do this for aspirational reasons, but 
it's not always good for happiness reasons is to look upwards not downwards you'll notice when you're walking around you'll notice affluence more i think because you you see it more because you and then you're looking up and you're and you then always see yourself as much worse off relatively speaking mm -hmm. than if you were to pay attention equally across income distribution absolutely so focus on education i love this one i don't know how causal the, this 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 is because we've got correlations but but the happiness returns to to education are not are not obvious beyond basic levels of education right mm. you know again not having any formal education at all is is not good for you but you don't necessarily need to do a PhD. <laughs> well, might, I feel like the most people yeah. I've spoken to have done a PhD feel less happy. There are some data that suggest that education is it has more of a return in terms of happiness for those that start off less happy. So that might be true. But it's an interesting question about, you know, w to what degree taxpayers should be funding people to go into higher education. I, I make the case in Happy Ever After for, for actually much less state involvement in in higher education than we have for distributional reasons because I care about the worst off I think we should be investing much more in primary and secondary education insofar as we have a limited pot um, than we do in higher education because because the earnings returns to higher, higher higher education are actually quite significant so I kind of think it's fairer mm -hmm. that people in higher education pay a greater fraction uh, of that and what about career success yeah, well, again, it's interesting. I mean, some of the jobs that have the highest status may not be the best jobs day to day. Remember at the start, I was talking about happiness being in our experiences, mm -hmm. in what we do when we use our time and what we pay attention to, including who we're with. And if you think about jobs that produce quite a lot of happiness day to day, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily the jobs that pay the highest wages. What would you um, reference Florists, that? hairdressers, personal trainers, yeah, I mean, they're, they're typically engaging with people that want to be around them. Often, not always, they get good feedback on what they've done. So they get feedback on the fruits of their labour quite quickly. If you contrast that with being a lawyer or a banker, that's much less obvious that you're mm. using your time in ways that, make, that are obviously good to you in the experiences. Isn't to say that people shouldn't be lawyers or bankers, but might suggest, is there, are there things that we can do to the environment of working in a bank or working in law? that could more closely replicate the kind of environments that we get in hairdressing, floristry and so on, where you do get more feedback, where employers are telling their employees more about how well or badly they're you know, doing day to day. It's interesting you mentioned those two jobs because unhappiness is rising at unprecedented rates more than ever before and there's more burnout than ever before and it's more burnout in those types of jobs. Why do you think that is? If you go into a job only because it pays well, and I'm not suggesting that that's what every lawyer and banker does, then you're going to be constantly chasing this, the, the wealth and the success and the status, and it, and it becomes never-ending. It's almost like mm. you're then on this treadmill where you can never have enough again. Going back to pleasure and purpose, particularly purpose, there's nothing worse than feeling like we're wasting our time or that something feels pointless. Mm -hmm. And even though we might get remunerated for it, it makes us feel bad and you know that's people we, we all of us really you know the scarcest resource we have is our time and it's incumbent on all of us to work out how to use it to better effect for ourselves and for other people so you talk a lot about pleasure and purpose and i think purpose is something that's very big through my journey and like, i speak about that a lot especially on this podcast yeah it's a really hard one to define and if i say to people what's your purpose sometimes i'm met with a very blank face how can someone figure out what their purpose is? I mean, it's a very open 
question and probably not one that you well, can answer very quickly but it's a big one that always seems to come up in my conversation well i think it's easier it's an e- it's a more tractable problem when it's located in what we do mm. rather than in the story we tell about ourselves so purpose comes in the way that i you know define it in what we pay attention to and what we do so if i'm tending to a garden or walking a dog or looking after the kids Actually, I don't have a dog or a garden. Well, not, I don't really care about gardening. But anyway, uh, I don't like my kids that much either. But um, uh, no, I do actually like them more now as they're getting older. But there's, there's something that feels purposeful in those experiences. In that moment. In, in the activities that you're engaged in. And it's not for someone else to you know, define that. And it may not be consistent with the story that I tell about the person that I am. So it's located in what we do. And I think if you can find things that feel like they have a point to them, then that's purpose. It's not this big story that you might tell about the grand meaning of life. That's when it, I think it becomes more challenging. I think it's more tractable when it's located in what we do. Yeah, because you talk a lot about being in that moment, don't you? Yeah. But I don't know how present we are in those moments. Well, that's a good we're question. we're so distracted. We, we, All of us. We, yeah, we are. We are. I think most, I mean, most of the things where you lose yourself in it, either pleasurably <laughs> or purposefully, are good experiences. Mm. And yeah, if you're constantly being distracted away from it, or even to think about whether it's making you happy or not, then you're probably not very happy. And so another thing that I guess relates to that moment and that you speak about is a lot about the evaluation and the experience. And so say you're in that moment and you think you're experiencing a happy, pleasurable moment or happy, purposeful moment. How do we know if that's just a prejudgment from our past experiences? Or not? Does it massively heavily impact our feeling in that moment? Well, I mean, the question is whether it matters or not, whether we delude ourselves. I mean, that's, you know, again, that's going to be on a U-shape, right? I don't think you want complete self-awareness. Do we not? <laughs> I'm not sure that's a good place. I'm not sure that's a good place to be. Like to really properly understand what other people really think of you, I'm not sure that's a good idea. But a little bit of delusion is <laughs> probably nice. But too much of it is going to be harmful, right? So, so again, so kind of having having. But you some, speak about this a lot. Uh, speak about which, which a lot? The evaluation versus I do, experience. I do. I just because I'm just, I'm struck by how much people live in the stories that they tell about the lives they should lead. And I, you know, I might be deluding myself now when I say <laughs> this, but I'm not aware of doing that too much myself. Like, you know, what kind of person do I think I should be, or what kind of life should I lead or what kind of job should I have it's like get on and do things and get the feedback whether they feel good either in a pleasure or purpose sense and do more of them if they feel pleasurable or purposeful and stop doing them if they don't but I'm struck you know students come to me at LSE and they'll say you know how do I get this job how do I get that job what strategy should I use for this and that and I'm like I have no idea I've never had any of these like five year plans or you know kind of expectations foisted on me by family or friends or whatever I feel quite free to wow so did you not grow up with any kind of heavy expectation from your parents of what you should do or uh or social groups really I mean not not really I mean I was you know I come from a working class family in the east end of London and 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 so to even go to university was you know surprising to then go on and become a professor at the LSE was shocking. I feel I was quite lucky in the sense that I didn't have very much of 
those kinds of expectations placed upon me and 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 we're trying not to do that with our kids too much right it's uh, it's hard because you do you can't help but think that your kids would lead better lives if only they looked at the world through your eyes but yeah. trying to allow them to make their own choices free of course we want to influence them because they because they're not very good at making choices as you know teenagers but um, to influence them in some way but to allow them to work out for themselves what's going to work and again you know just to to be clear it might be that they you know, decide to go into jobs that pay lots of money, that give them lots of status, success. They might get married to the one and have children or whatever and live happily ever after. That might work for them, but being alert to the fact that that also might not. I think that's really interesting, actually, because having um, a brother who's gay, he's probably gone through his life feeling like he doesn't fit into the norm, as what you've just mentioned. And how do you think so many people that feel inherently quite different, how do you think that affects their own personal happiness? such a good question and it gives me the opportunity to mention penile blood flow there was a really cool study where groups of men were first established they, they first established the extent to which they were homophobic you know from survey data and then they showed them gay porn and there was more penile blood flow in the homophobic group than in the non-homophobic group and what's really significant about that i think is it gives us one explanation for why people judge what other people do so harshly is because actually I'd quite like to be them. You know, if you're completely at ease with your sexuality, then why do you care whether people are gay or not? Mm. You might care because God doesn't want you to be because your parents would disown you, right? And so a big part of what makes people miserable is other people's judgments of their lives, which these and other data would suggest comes sometimes, not always, Mm. comes from a place of jealousy. If we can just, again, it's like getting rid of these narratives and stories would enable, it's not going to make more people gay. It's not like some of the people say, oh, like, everyone's going to be gay. Well, no, because people will still be gay and people will still be straight. Mm. Or, you know, and, and the whole range of things in between. But it would just mean that we would free up the judgments that we're making of people that are different in some sense. Mm. And I think a significant part of your brother's happiness would increase then and other people's happiness when they're free of those kinds of judgments. Why do you think we have such strong views that feel that we impact our happiness? Because they do, I think, if you actually feel quite angry about something that's happened, maybe about someone else's view or viewpoint or differentiation of opinion, which I know you speak quite a lot yeah. about, and this is a very big area of your research and also your, your Duck Rabbit podcast that I really want to come on to. But why do we feel so restricted to other people's views? Beyond jealousy, there is a sense in which, you know, like we, we do need rules to govern society, right? Mm. It would be chaotic. It would be, you know, there would be we, being a mess if we didn't have particular rules. So some of these rules are helpful for coherence and, and they can give our lives coherence and they can give the judgments that we make of other people some kind of structure. One of the reasons I think why, why marriage has really stood the test of time, that we judge people often on the basis of whether they're married or not because while all the rest of the world is going to hell in a handcar at least we've got that institution right it gives us some grounding right so you know we see the numbers of of people that judge uh, that that hasn't actually shifted that that much over time right Mm. so um so there is some sense in which it provides ballast and people that are more there's a there's a scale called social dominance orientation sdo which is the degree to which you believe in these hierarchies and these kinds of structures. And people high on that SEO scale are more likely to judge people who, who are outside of the norm much more harshly than those that stay within it. 
how can we open up our viewpoints more? How can we become actually more open to differentiating of opinions and actually not shut off to them, not try to feel actually that just because somebody has a different opinion to me, it means that they're a bad person or their view is wrong. How can we actually be more accepting of that? Because I feel like that would play a huge part in people's happiness. Yeah, we could grow up. I mean, would help. I mean, one of the things we're very, you know, I mean, in, in one sense, in a psychological sense, is that we're very good at, uh, at making life simple by having good or bad people, right? You know, cowboy films used to have the black and white hats and stuff mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, whatever. And, and our kids would, ask, my son would often ask, he's, he's, he's learned not to ask this question anymore because he gets told off for it. But um, is, you know, is this a good person? Is this a bad person? Is this good? Is this bad? And we're like, Stan, it's much more ambivalent than that. It's much more complicated than that. All of us are complex combinations of good and bad, but we're mm. very quick to label things as good or bad and mm. people as good or bad based upon one thing they might have said and all of what they say thereafter is good or bad, often bad. Surely it does require a bit of growing up to realise that the world is more complicated, it's more ambivalent than that and accept the fact that it's not that straightforward. But we're not going to... But it's easy to say that and of course much harder to do it because it's much simpler if we can define people into boxes. All of us put people into boxes quickly. I guess the extent is to which we're willing to move them around mm. once we get more information about them or what they've said. And as you mentioned, going back to David Williams, you mentioned comedy and humour. I think comedy and humour is a great way to break down barriers. I think we could do with laughing more. I yeah. mean, we could probably disagree about more in some substantive sense if we're engaged in that in a more humorous way than if it's very intense and very serious. I completely agree with you. And I also think something else, just from listening to you, that's come to my mind is is compassion. Because I think Mm. that plays a really big part in trying to be more compassionate around other people's views. And something that I think that maybe we're not doing great in society is actually listening to others, actively listening and feeling that compassion. What's your views on that? And how can we be better listeners? Because I think that's quite a big part in actually understanding one another. Yeah, I think what you said also reminds me of humility as well. Like one of the reasons I, I went into academia, which I say, which is not an obvious not an obvious thing for a working class kid to go into, is because I loved a good argument. But really significantly being willing to change my mind when better evidence becomes available that would suggest I should change it. Like I've never had any problem really in saying I've changed my mind about something. You know, because we should do when better evidence becomes available when the world changes. The things I thought 20 years ago are not many of the things I think now. Some are, some aren't. We seem to have this idea that you need to be wedded to a consistent set of beliefs or a consistent set of views about things, which again, is kind of, it, feels like child, it feels quite childish to me. It's not very grown up to be alert to nuance and the fact that we can change. And actually, sometimes I just don't know the answer, right? I don't, I don't know what I think about lots of things because I haven't spent very much time thinking about them or there might be other people that might know more than I do. I can talk to them. I mean, you know, and I can change my mind and I can listen to people who have different views and, you know, I feel quite, I feel, I think I feel quite comfortable in do, doing that. But do you think um, ego plays a big part in, in saying, actually, I can change my mind about this. I can actually put my hands up and say I was wrong about this situation I said five years ago. I think ego can play a massive part and a sense of pride in people not wanting to change their opinion. The challenge is separating ourselves from some of the things that we do and say, or maybe even the jobs we have. I mean, I do think one of the reasons I, I sort of half jokingly said that academics don't have much humour is because if you laugh, if you have laughter, it's almost like they laugh, you're laughing at the work, which is very serious. Yeah. But we need to, if you could just put a little bit of tracing paper difference between, you know, distance between yourself and what you do, or yourself and what you, 
you say you can retain that sense of ego, that sense of self, at the same time as changing your mind and laughing and all these other things. And do you think if you feel more comfortable in your sense of self, you can actually open that more? Do you think that plays a big part get, in our sense of I, I get, I guess it does. I mean, when our identities are wrapped up in things, it becomes diffi- more difficult for us to see the other side. I mean, this will, this will be the theme of the next book. It, it, you know, we're not going to do this in a way that, in Happiness by Design, I say that we're not going to just be happier by thinking ourselves so. We have to design our environments and our lives in ways to make it easier. I think the same thing will is true, almost obviously true, of disagreement and listening to other people. We can't just tell ourselves to listen to other people because we don't like it. Actually, none of us do. I don't really. I mean, I, I don't want you to disagree with me. It's like, you know, we're going to get on better if you agree. You nod your head rather than shake it, right? So, so I have to design my environment and organisations and institutions in ways that make it easier for us to disagree and listen. So talk to me about the, the reasons for writing this book, because people would love to know that they can design their own happiness. Well, Because that was kind of the first, the tipping point. Now you've obviously got another book since then, and you're now writing your next book. But yeah. what was the first point on you writing this book? Why, why did, why did I write it? Yeah. Well, honestly, because I gave an inaugural lecture at LSE, spoke about some of the issues that were in the book, and a publisher or an editor at one of the publishing houses came to me and said, this would make a great book. I thought, actually, yeah, I've got enough material now of kind of work that I've either done myself or colleagues that I've worked with or other people's work that I know that would coalesce around an idea or a set of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that was, that was why I hadn't until that point thought about writing a popular science book. And I enjoyed it, I have to say. There's something liberating as an academic about writing popular science because mm-hmm. you can be more of yourself in those books. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that we can design our own life and happiness? I think, going back to where we started, I think irrespective of the amount of, of the role that genes play or other people play or environments or conditions and circumstances play, we do have a little bit of wiggle room to be able to allocate our time in ways that will make us happier, away from things that feel less good towards things that feel better. And, and, and whilst there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to being happy, there are some things that all of us could do more of each day that would make us happier, I think, irrespective of how, how happy we are. And most of these are fucking obvious, but they're overlooked. Can you name them? Going outdoors, mm-hmm. listening to music. Music is like, that literally lights the brain up, mm. right? Everyone knows, we all know that listening to more music <laughs> makes us feel good. How much do we actually listen to? Could we listen to a bit more? Probably. Helping other people. That's one. That's a big one. You know, totally helping other people. Little things we can do to help other people each day mm. or once in a while or, you know, whenever. Spend more time with people we like being with. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, obvious. Having new experiences. That helps slow time down. One of the reasons why time passes so slowly for children compared to adults is every day is a new, a new experience. Uh, they're literally soaking up the world in ways that when you get older, days just disappear because you're doing the same thing every day. So that will slow down time. It will make you feel like you've got more time to be happy. Laughter. You know, these are like half a dozen things there that are really obvious and good for all of us. And interestingly, often get crowded out when we're searching for those other things, the wealth, the the success and the status, maybe the marriage and the kids even, that draw our attention away from doing those things each day, that make us pay attention to those bigger things when actually happiness is most often found in the smaller things. And do you think that's what's making us stop implementing change into our daily lives? So things like exercise and movement and food and social circles, like seeing your friends in the evening, some people can put quite literally in the back burner because their work consumes so much of them day to day or their daily chores consume too much of them day to day. How can we create an equilibrium, a balance here? Yeah, because those other things 
matter more each day and these other things can be put on the back burner till in the end you don't do them or you lose friends or mm. whatever you know you can do both i mean it's not like you have to choose between these things i mean you know, listening to music is relatively costless and easy you know for me music has been just such a massive part of my of my life like mm. um, i'm pleased that our kids also enjoy music i mean there's something really nice about the shared experience of music as well when i foist music on them that they don't want to listen to and force them to enjoy it um but also when i when i listen to some of their you know their the things that they now um listen to mm. i feel so i you know this is incredibly judgment i mean of course you know we can't help but judge other people sometimes you know i do judge other parents who won't listen to music past 1990 or something or 1980 or whatever it's like there has been music since then um, and we should be open to we should be open to listen to you know listening to different things. Being open to new to new things and yeah. to new experiences, I think, is really significant and important. And not everybody is, and not everybody can be. And you know, well functioning societies will have a distribution of people across any single dimension that you can pick, right? You know, like risk attitude, even right. So like you know. We would never have left Africa if no one was willing to take a risk, if we were all super cautious. We would have all died out if everyone was a massive risk taker, right? You need a balance. You need people who are open to change and, and you need more, you know, others that are more resistant to change. That's how well-functioning societies work. But we could all shift ourselves a little bit closer to being happier on some of these attributes if we were to be a bit more open, mm. uh, if we were to try new things and the worst that can happen is you don't like it and you don't do it again. So you're mentioning music here. Yeah. Hey Festival. I haven't brought this up yet. Yeah. Something that I think many women listening to this podcast might feel quite relieved to hear because normally they feel a lot of pressure. So you said famously, and he did say it famously because it came in news headline and it's still till this day. I personally think it's fantastic, but it caused a lot of controversy. You came to the conclusion that single child-free women mm. were the happiest. Please yeah, tell me more about this. Well, there are some data on that. I mean, actually, healthiest is probably more... There's there's more robust data on that. Women that don't have children in terms of a lot of the long-term health conditions and in living longer. They tend to live longer than women that have had children and married. And the first thing to say is that, you know, it's not true of every single <laughs> child-free woman. It's not true of every single mm -hmm. married woman that she's less happy. I mean, people like misinterpret this evidence. And, and I was also very careful to caveat it by saying that we have no randomised controlled trials in this, right? We can't be lovely to allocate people to marriage or to being single, lovely to force some people to have children and others not to. That would be brilliant for understanding causal factors. But, you know, dodgy ethics. Cute ethics there. There are a few ethical <laughs> problems with that. So we're making extrapolations from from this evidence and from these kinds of data. What's important, prior to me saying more about that, is that all of us, academics included, come at data and come at questions with our own underlying priors and assumptions. I mean, academics, we're meant to be kind of neutral and unbiased, but we can't help ourselves having a particular set of beliefs when we come to evidence and data. And the way that we interpret it will be driven by some of those things. And if those social norms and expectations are shaping our beliefs, and we're going to be more likely to draw conclusions that those social norms are good for us. What you'd ideally want is academics collaborating with each other that disagree, that explicitly before they go to the data, disagree. That's one way to reduce the polarisation problem, mm. by, the, by the way, is to get people to be very clear and explicit about what their underlying priors are and get people who disagree to work together. That would be that would be fantastic. We're trying um, to disprove each hypothesis. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's the best way to do it. It's the best way to do it. Critical insight from someone who disagrees with you. 
it's a heavily referenced book. <laughs> it's not like I was just making this up, but people think, oh, he, what does he know? He's a man. <laughs> right, well, yeah, I'm drawing on lots of data that kind of support these claims. But it's interesting because yeah, so. I think a woman would be more likely to say that. A woman who is child-free and single would be more likely to make that statement than a man who is married with children. Yeah, I guess, because I don't, I don't really care, right? I mean, I, I mean, I don't care in the sense that whatever the evidence tells us, tells us. There are some good, you know, data out there that would support the claim that single, child-free women are doing really fucking well, in spite of the fact that the narrative suggests that they're not. I mean, we all, you know, the number of women that, was, that have since told me, you know, women in their 30s or 40 or whatever, you know, people ask them, are you married, have you got kids? And they'll say no, and they'll, look, they'll be looked at a little bit with pity. It's like, you know, maybe one day you'll meet the right guy and that'll all change. Well, marriage is much more of a gamble for women than it is for men. I think the data support that claim too, that he tends to calm down. She tends to get another kid to look after. I mean, mm. that's not, I mean, you know, it's much more of a gamble. Uh, for her than it is for him he, he might probably earn a bit more money live a bit longer she might die a bit sooner <laughs> right I mean and again you know as anyone knows like marriage is great for those that it works for if you enter into a good good marriage but not if you enter into a bad one it does appear to be more of a gamble for women than it is for men I mean the kids thing's really interesting for a long time I loved the existence of my children not their presence and and not many people would admit that no because you're not allowed to I got trolled when I wrote a piece for The Guardian on what makes me happy. It was partly tongue-in-cheek, but mostly serious. I think I said that I'd rather be in the gym than spend time with my kids. So that was absolutely true when they were babies. Somehow I'm a really bad parent for being honest about that. And there's plenty more parents out there that think the same thing. Because it's hard work. And it does have purpose, but it's not very but pleasurable. But surely, if you're looking after yourself by going to the gym and... you know, And I'm not saying that this is right or wrong, but I guess like the kind of the other side of the story would be if you're looking after yourself and you're getting an hour to yourself in the gym, you're actually coming back a better parent than feeling highly stressed. I think stressed so. I mean, I, you time. I mean, a lot of parents will meld with their children, right? They're literally, their lives become their kids, which is not healthy for the kids when they leave home. And the parents don't ever want them to anyway. But, um, you know, so it's, it's like, look, look, none of us know what we're doing. We're all muddling through. It's unsurprising that children given the amount of attention that they require to be looked after given how little they can do for themselves i mean they come out a year early right i mean that's only so women can stand up right i mean there's a there's an evolutionary battle between women and the gestation period of kids right there's no other mammal that comes out and needs it needs a year before it can walk right so we're doing things for our children that should be in vitro or that would ordinarily not, not, not should be because women don't need to be on all fours but um, <laughs> that would be a bad that that would be a step backwards let's not let's not say should be <laughs> that might otherwise be in vitro <laughs> professor says women that should be on all fours that's not um that, that that's a that's a step backwards but you know what i mean right so we're, we're spending a lot of time caring for these children it's unsurprising that a lot of that caring juices notwithstanding the fact that helping other people makes us feel good mm. is going to be miserable and, and and from my own personal experience the stress and worry and anxiety associated with having kids is enormous i mean our daughter was born small and early and you know it was you know i wouldn't change anything about my kids but my god the fear like that anxiety that i have i never experienced before wasn't good like it wasn't nice to feel like that mm. so why why can't we be honest about the fact that we're ambivalent about these things. Most things are ambivalent. Very, very rarely in life do you find things that are categorically all good or all bad. 
and children certainly fall into that group. So at least being honest about the ambivalence about mm. kids is going to be good because I think what happens is a lot of parents then have children and they, they kind of feel like they're bad parents or they're failing because they're not enjoying every minute of it. It's the, it's the expectation is set so fucking high that you can only ever fall short. Mm. But I think a big thing about all of this, and whether it's with kids, with relationships, with career, no one ever really says how they feel. No one ever says, I had a really shit day at work, or my company's failing, or my child's a nightmare, or I'm having an awful time in my relationship. Everyone always says, it's great, I'm great, I'm great. It's really hard because without any of this honesty, we all go through life thinking everyone else has got this perfect life who's exceptionally happy. And then you also see it again compounded on social media. Mm. I love how so many parents will say uh, people that don't have children are selfish. <laughs> I love that one. I love that one. There's nothing more selfish than the narcissistic you know, desire to bring your own offspring and your own genes into the world. And to create pollution as a result of it. I mean, like, we, you know, we, we, we could probably do with fewer people having fewer kids for the kind of, you know, planetary constraints that we're facing. And yet, people that don't have children are seen as selfish. I mean, it's, it's a very, very odd thing. Look, I mean, I don't, it, 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 all of this is really quite straightforward to me, is just chill out a little bit, judge other people less, pay attention to having experiences of pleasure and purpose, and life will be better. I don't see anything contrary. I don't know why anybody would find anything that I've just said controversial. I mean, I don't, but I also think <laughs> so many of us struggle to be honest with ourselves. <laughs> We struggle to be honest, and I think that's a for me is something that I think is a core root of, of happiness. Yeah, and I do, but it's quite interesting going. But like if, we, if we go full circle to where we started, you asked me about whether I was happy. There's lots of narratives that I could create about my conditions and my circumstances and my life, which in, which in various occasions, in various ways, over many years, hasn't been easy. But I feel fundamentally lucky, and I think that that's the key. That for me is a key part of being happy. For me, for me is to appreciate just how lucky I am. The gratitude. The gratitude of the randomness. It's not like, like genuine luck. I don't mean things that I've done to make myself lucky, that people say, well, you make your own luck. You can't make randomness, right? However much you might think you have some control, you don't actually control randomness. And, and so much of what happens to us, that whether life turns out well or turns out badly, is random, is luck. Has very little to do, because once you've, once you've accounted for genes, environment the interaction between genes and environment right you know conditions and circumstances of life and randomness the amount that's left for free will pretty tiny and we can do a little bit at the margins but let's be a bit more humble and a bit more honest that most of what happens to us in life is either determined for us but not very much by us and 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 even if it's by us there's been a huge amount of randomness there too yeah i think that's a really nice way to look at it it's a randomness. And I think also to encourage that randomness, to be more curious is a big thing that I think that can actually challenge that and actually become more curious with our surroundings, with who we meet. It's a big thing, I think, that plays Yeah, and I think lives. that openness to experiences. One of the things I'm going to try to, I, this, you know, this um, conversation reminds me to do more of for my next book is to actively seek out people who disagree with me. Hmm. I want to spend, I mean, most of us have never learned very much in our lives from successes from failures mostly, right? If you've, ever, if you've ever actually learned anything. Yeah, what would you learn from your biggest failure? It, oh, I don't know. Let me think about that. Let, me, let, let my unconscious mind process that for a second. And I reckon that most of what we learn about anything isn't going, to be, isn't, going to become, isn't going to come from finding people that agree with us, right? It's going to come from listening to dissenting views. What did you learn? What's your biggest <laughs> learning from your biggest failure? 
stride? I don't. That's such a good question. I don't know that I have a good enough answer on the spot. It's probably one of those ones that I think about afterwards. Where luck has played a big part has been in some sense that I have of being resilient, some sense of coping with adversity in some way or another. I had an awful stammer when I was a kid. I talk about it at the start of Happiness Bows. I mean, I couldn't get a word out. I mean, I literally would stammer a lot. And I just thought I'd grow out of it at some point. And it, I didn't grow out of it. I've never, it hasn't completely gone away, like even now. It's one of the reasons why I talk so fast, I think, is because I'm trying to get the words out quickly. And I started putting myself in situations that were incredibly fearful, like, mm you know, giving talks, doing public speaking, all the things that stammerers generally avoid because I wanted to try to deal with it. Mm. Now, I don't know the degree to which I chose to do that, right? I sat mm. down one day and rationally said, I'm going to do that. I think I have something that's in me that I haven't chosen. This is the bit about luck that somehow, for some reason, made me the kind of person that put myself in the face of fear in order to overcome it. I could tell you how much it's all down to my own efforts and my volition and my agency and what a hardworking person I am and throwing myself in these things. I don't know how much I really chose that. I just, just kind of happened to be the kind of person that faced adversity in those ways. And there's been other things that have happened in my life that I feel that I've been lucky to be able to face. Not lucky that they happened to me, but lucky that I've been able to face them, if that makes mm. sense. No, it does. I think it's a really interesting one. I think because one, I agree with you on the luck sense, but two, I do think there's a lot of resilience within that. I think a lot of people would stop and wouldn't want to carry on because the fear becomes too much for that person that actually it's just not worth it. So the long-term reward for the effort put in is just not worth it, so they step back. Yeah, there's something about perseverance in me, I think. Mm. I've done most things I've done, I've done and then continued to do them. I think that's been good. But not past the point at which it becomes optimal. I, the, the, uh, the, we have some research colleagues at LSE are doing lots of work on perfectionism, which is, you know, harmful. I mean, people will say they're a, you know, that they are a perfectionist if it's something to be proud of, but actually it's quite harmful. People wear that with a crown, I think, sometimes, that statement, but I think <laughs> it can be quite damaging. It is quite damaging because their sense of self is actually quite insecure because in order to see yourself as good you have to be perfect and of course you know and maybe getting older I'm finding it easier as I get older I think it takes a long time to grow up I was talking about you know growing up earlier I don't think any of us ever do properly but I do think that maybe it's one of the reasons why one of the one of the most profound effects that we find in happiness data in the life satisfaction question this is how happy are you with, with your life these days or overall is a u-shaping age it's a really significant u-shaping age we find that across any population anywhere in the world is that you start off happy when you're born <laughs> when you're born, when you're born. <laughs> yeah we do we we haven't got survey data on people when they're born in the household survey so that typically people starting at 18 and then they get increasingly less happy till their late 40s early 50s and then happiness starts to take an uptick in the early 50s till pretty much close to death. I mean, the last six months of life are not, not, not that good. But right, right through to the 70s and 80s is, is that we, we start seeing happiness increase. And so the biggest dip is when? The, when so people, the, so are, people are least happy. No. So, so, so what's really interesting about that is that we find that effect, whether you control for children, whether you don't control for children, whether you put income in, marriage in, all the factors that might be associated with midlife. There is a midlife crisis. It's a very real phenomenon. It's a very real phenomenon. I have colleagues who have a cool paper looking at primates where the zookeepers rate the happiness of the primates and they live to about 40 and they have their midlife crisis around 20. It's a very, I think it's a very, very real phenomenon that we 
experience something as we approach midlife that makes us feel less happy. And since it's so profound and so pervasive and so universal, it's probably likely to be something very basic, like existential dread or something, right? That we get reminded as we get older. You know, like 18 year olds don't think about dying because they're gonna live forever. 80 year olds know that they're not. Once you get into midlife, you're getting these reminders <laughs> of your mortality and it's, and it's not nice. And so we sort of joke about the midlife crisis a bit, don't we? Like but it's a real thing. men buying fast cars and getting leather trousers and stuff or whatever. But I think it's real. I mean, I think it's very, very real. And you know, we see, it's part of the reasons why you know, we, we see the highest suicide rates in men, men in, their, in their early 50s, I think. I think that's the age group that we, that we, that we see it in. It's you know, generally a bad time. And that's one of the things that I say to my students at, at LSE is that they, you know, I, I, there's not many things to commend getting older when I look at all these young faces. But one thing is that they're on the downward part of the happiness curve and I'm starting to be on the upward You're one. Going that up. makes me feel better. So before we leave, I want to ask you, what would be your three top tips for people to help implement happiness into their lives? From listening to this, because there's yeah, so don't much be, we don't covered. Be, don't be middle-aged, that's, that's, that's one. <laughs> <laughs> Miss that bit out. <laughs> Just jump to the next chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Anyone who's in their midlife, what go for Go from young to being old. Because <laughs> we've covered a lot. We've, we've de- we demystified. Well, what do you think? What do you think based on what I've said? There's a lot. I think compassion is a big thing compassionate to ourselves but to others that right. brings in a sense of kindness right i think that's a really big thing i think we can go through our day-to-day lives trying to do tit lists trying to be quite self-absorbed into yeah. things that we need to do for ourselves and we actually detach from any compassion or any empathy or any kindness so i kind of think having that sense of compassion for ourselves just to stop and also compassion towards others i think is a really big one and i think that's what we can implement without wasting any time of well I need to go out and put an hour aside to do yeah. some exercise yeah. that we can all implement quite quickly so I definitely think compassion is one and we touched upon that I love the pleasure and purpose so I think trying to be more present in the moments of actually what are we experiencing is a big one and I think environment within I resonate a lot with the environments we surround ourselves in and I think if we can get out and be in nature more or even just getting out, listening to a podcast or doing something where you're detaching and increasing parts of pleasure within your day is a really big thing. I like that. And they're they're things that are relatively easy to do Mm. on a day-to-day basis. And they're not, again, they're not in those, they're not in the big things, you know, changing the world or changing your life or doing something dramatic. They're kind of day-to-day. There was a book in the 80s about don't sweat the small stuff. I think it's completely wrong. It is in the small stuff. Life is in the small stuff. Happiness is found in those small things. Mm. One of the things that's interesting me now as I'm thinking more about this, these you know, issues and, the, in, and these sorts of data is actually the creation of the stories, not, not the narratives, the social narratives of stories about the lives we should lead, but the stories that we can tell about things that we've done and things mm. that we not, haven't done, but you know, things that we've done. Things even if they haven't turned out well, which is why I like, which is why I'm really pushing this idea of trying new things doing new things because the worst that can happen is that you don't like it and don't do it again but actually you might still have a good story to tell about it in fact you think about some of the the funniest things that you share with your family and friends they probably weren't the best experiences in the moment Mm. right but you've had those experiences and they give you opportunity to create a good story about them it's actually why people go on holiday because holidays are a complete waste of time and money by and large i mean family ones 
right? I mean, they are, I mean, they're literally periods of unmitigated misery with an odd moment of joy, right? Right? That's, everyone knows that. Complete waste of money. On the one hand, they're a complete waste of money. But on the other hand, if you get a good story that you can tell about something that's happened, then they might be worth it. Yeah. And life's a lot like that. Life's a lot like that. <laughs> Long periods of misery. <laughs> and then a moment and of joy. Ch- children are like that. Long periods of misery, a moment of joy, and you can tell a good story about them afterwards. Well, that's why gratitude actually is going to be one of my three, I think. If we can reference gratitude and be thankful for one thing in a day, I think that really changes your mindset and really actually makes you appreciate even if your day's been really grim. <laughs> Well, I do think I do think again. I know I know that. I know you've got I know you've got some doubts about the sort of luck point, but again, for me that comes back to luck. Just reminding, reminding ourselves, you know, that fundamentally we're, we're not all of us. All the time, you know, a lot of people are really struggling and really suffering, and I don't want to be disingenuous to that or sound dismissive of that. But most of you people listening to your podcast are going to be doing all right to some mm. large extent, and to remind ourselves that we're lucky to to have that. Absolutely. So lastly, I always leave the same question to all of my guests, which is Paul. What does live well, be well mean to you? So live well for me would be all the things that we're talking about is doing things in our daily lives that feel good, that make us feel well. I guess that Mm. for me would be live well. The be well is probably more of a more of a reflection or a sort of cognitive process that sits alongside that. So the living is the doing. And the being is the, I guess, some of the stuff that we talked about, the self-awareness, the sitting there with yourself, the kind of understanding that you have to be. And actually, sometimes, this is this is really difficult for somebody like me, is to actually be is to not to do. And I struggle with that. It's actually one thing, you know, I kind of, you know, we talked a lot about what's, you know, good or whatever, but just sitting with myself mm. is is a real struggle. And That's I think hard. so living, it is hard. I don't like it very much. I want to be around other people. And I want to be doing stuff. There was a really cool experiment where they sat people in a room with an electric shock machine. They just asked them to sit there with themselves for however long it was. And many of the participants would give themselves electric shocks because that's at least feeling something, Mm. right? And I I would definitely be one of those people. I would reach for that shock machine very quickly because that's much better than just sitting in stillness. I I think for me, that living, living well and being well, I could do a lot more of being able to distinguish between that, right? To be... Yeah, good at doing stuff, mm. but also to be good at just sitting still. I think actually sitting still can be one of the most scariest things that we can do for ourselves because you're sitting still with your thoughts. That's what's quite hard. Yeah, don't like that place very much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and a purpose. Fantastic. Brilliant, thank you. Amazing, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please can I ask one huge favour. If you could subscribe, share and rate this podcast, it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us. It will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well.